Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Uh, Before we start our Dark Poutine show, I wanted to add something that's a little more Canadian to the show. So, well, kind of. Welcome to Dark Poutine. That's not murdery at all. It's not murdery at all, but it's very Canadian. It's very Canadian. It puts people at ease before we start to talk about murder. Before we give them anxiety. That's right. We we lure you in. For those of you who are unaware of what those haunting sounds were, that was a loon on a lake. It's a water bird found here in Canada, and you can see a loon on our dollar bill. The loony. And we're going to play that at the beginning of every show. My name is Mike Brown. I'm the creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend, co-host Scott Hemingway. Oh, hi, everybody. He's here to listen to me tell him a scary story about his hometown this week. Yeah, my roots. As our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes, listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. That is probably clear to anybody who has listened to this show at least once. (laughs) We're just two regular Canadians interested in the darker side of Canadian history. Uh, Irregular, maybe. Well, I'm pretty regular. I eat a lot of fiber. Yeah, I guess if we're going in that sense, I'm totes regular. In August of 1982, three generations of a family, six people, went off on a two-week camping trip around the Wells Gray National Park near Clearwater, B.C. Where I happen to be born. That is correct. Uh, it's amazing that you know that. I, I do. Um, yeah. It's, you well, didn't know where you were born. Some, someone told you that. He was on my birth certificate. There you go. Yeah. When the family did not return as expected, they were reported missing. Over a month later, the bodies were found. They'd been brutally murdered. Police worked through a maze of evidence for the next year to solve this case. This is the story of the Wells Gray murders. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. So this is episode 30 of Dark Poutine. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, uh, 
We want to th- start by thanking our regular subscribers and welcome our new listeners. Which seem to be many. Yeah. Which we're, is exciting. Yeah, we're doing pretty well. Uh, as Scott mentioned, he was born in Clearwater, BC, and uh, he's been looking forward to this story for sure, as has your mom. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure my dad as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. for sure, because he was probably there when you were born. <laughs> he was, he was. Uh, but also, I think he had more of a connection to this than anybody else in the family. I don't think he was living in Clearwater when okay. this took place, but he still had a lot of friends and was close. Sure. So, yeah. Ugh. Yes. Ugh. And uh, so how long did you live there? Well, that's a great question. Oh, so you don't know. So you're, you're a uh, little I'd say puckster? probably two, uh, three years, maybe like from be one or, or two to three years. Okay, because we moved like born in Clearwater, uh, then lived in Pinantan Lake for a while. I decided to pick up things and head to Vancouver when, when you I was were four. three or yeah, four. Yeah, four. Yeah, that's when I was like, you know what? I'm a big city kind of baby. There you go. And I ventured out. So, uh, yeah, I'd say, I guess up until around four, I was in that area, which is very, very tiny. So without giving away too much, do you remember this story at all? No, not from when it, uh, uh, not when it took place. It wasn't until a couple of years back when my dad started to uh, talk about it that uh, I was like, oh, this is an interesting one. You were probably too young then anyway, because it happened in 1982. Well, I would have been uh, nine in 82. Okay. But uh, we did, you know, media wasn't quite the same as it is now where you can just pop on the old internets and do some goggling and find stuff out. Like back then, as it, we didn't have cable TV, so I wasn't when I was nine, so it wasn't like I could just, you know... Yeah, our family didn't have cable very early on either. And it wasn't because we didn't have the money. It's because dad was cheap. (laughs) I hope he's listening. Well, I think we were just like living with my mom at that time and her boyfriend. And pretty much hippies back then. There you go. You know, so like TV, they probably like it just, yeah. Hippie, you know, hippies and TV. (laughs) It's the man. (laughs) Exactly. But so I I was old enough to remember, but it just wasn't something that ever uh, popped up in my life. So in early August of 1982, George, 66, and his wife Edith Bentley, 59, of Coquitlam, B.C., that's a a place just outside of Vancouver, they headed north on a two-week camping trip. They were off to Wells Gray Provincial Park near Clearwater. It's a scenic five-hour drive away. Beautiful drive in a beautiful location. Wells Gray is an inland rainforest consisting of 5,250 square kilometers. That's uh, 1.3 million acres of Canadian wilderness beauty in what has been called supernatural British Columbia, our home province. Yeah, it's just a gorgeous area. The place is amazing year-round with an average temperature in spring uh, and summer of a comfortable 22 degrees Celsius, dropping to a livable minus 5 in late fall and winter. So it doesn't really get too hot or too cold. Yep, yep, that's not too bad. Uh, I remember the interior, though, getting quite hot. Depends on, on, on whereabouts. Uh, it's near Kamloops. Okay. So uh, Kamloops can get pretty, pretty deserty in the summertime and Kelowna as well. So it's about an hour out of Kamloops. And so it uh, it can get hot, but it was not, not outrageously there because it's very, uh, well, it's a rainforest. So. 
There you go. Uh, it's packed with wildlife, home to 200 plus lakes, mm-hmm. 22 volcanoes and volcanic features. Oh, I didn't know was aware of that. And 39 waterfalls. And one of the prettiest waterfalls is Helmlichen Waterfall. Yeah, I believe, I believe I've gone there with my family later in, in my 20s. Have you ever taken the girls there? No, no, I've never taken them there. It would be a, quite a trek. And in case I've never mentioned it, I have two daughters podcast. <laughs> That would be quite a trek for those two kids, I think. I think they could do it now. Yeah. I think they could hack it now. Yeah, for uh, sure. Just give them their iPads. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But no Roblox, right? No. Yeah, I've seen the discussions about that popping up too. Interesting. Like uh, we actually, I think, educated some people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, be aware. Yeah. I don't think, uh, I don't think Roblox is evil at all. I just think there are some evil people who might hang out there, but I don't think the game in and of itself is evil. I don't think the game is evil. I don't think the people who make it intended for this to be the purpose, but I do think from the last time I saw it, they could do a lot more to make it a safer environment. Anyways. Back to Wells Gray. It also features Canada's largest alpine flower meadow amid the Trophy Mountains, which topped 2,575 meters. I don't know what alpine flower meadow. It's uh, beautiful. I'm going to say, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. I mean, the more I read about this this is like, I feel like this is an ad for Wells Gray as well. (laughs) Like, I'm telling you. Like, again, I left there when I was young, but I've gone back there numerous times as an adult, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous place. I am definitely going to go there. Do it. Uh, The province of BC Parks Service manages the over 200 kilometers of groomed ski, biking, and hiking trails. As well, the park hosts North America's largest paddle-only lake. Oh, which lake was that? I can't remember which one it is. Uh You'll have to look at wellsgray.ca. Outdoors is your thing. Wells Gray is definitely worth considering. And I have not been an outdoorsy person for a while, but I was a Boy Scout and all that kind of stuff. And Aww. I kind of, I kind of miss the outdoors. And well, we get so caught up in the in the grind of life. Yeah, you know that when you're plugging away to nine to five. Your time off, you've been doing it for 20 years. Your time off is like, I just need to recover. You're not thinking about, it would be wonderful to take a nice drive up to the interior and just camp and, you know, like, so it's, uh, it's understandable that we don't get to take advantage of these beautiful areas. Yeah. The scenery and serenity weren't the main attractions for the Bentleys, however. They were going to meet and spend their vacation with their daughter, Jackie Johnson, 40, their son, Bob, 44, and their two granddaughters, Janet, 13, and Karen, who was 11. Sounds like it'd be a great, great trip. Great trip. The Bentleys, who'd retired a few years prior, had recently purchased a 1981 Ford truck with a 1971 camper. George and Edith loved the wilderness and camping. This new camper provided just the right amount of comfort. Hmm. George had purchased a small aluminum boat and attached it to the roof so he could spend time serenely fishing on one of BC's many lakes. They had done some touring of the province already, but were really looking forward to seeing their daughter and her family on this trip. The Johnsons lived in West Bank, a suburb of Kelowna, a city in BC's interior we featured in the episode on the murder of Mindy Tran. Mm Mm-hmm. Bob Johnson was a devoted family man. He was active in his family's lives, but also liked to sit in front of the TV with an extra old stock beer watching hockey games on the weekends. I mean, I'm down for that minus the beer. It sounds pretty awesome. Very Canadian. Here's the most Canadian job. Bob Mm -hmm. was a sawyer. 
Do you know what a Sawyer is? A last name? Yeah, but the last name comes from the actual job. Uh, uh, chopping down trees. It is a person who cuts lumber. Yes, you are correct. Hey, well, there you go. Which, uh, along those lines, my father, was he's, he worked in lumber mills his whole life. That's what he worked in when he Well, Bob there. worked for Gorman Mills in Kelowna. Did your dad work there? I don't think so. Okay. But I don't know. Dad, message me. <laughs> he will, I'm sure, <laughs> uh, once he's done watching Jeopardy. <laughs> he's commented about that since. Good. Jackie was a stay-at-home mother and, by all accounts, a lovely person. She developed an interest in photography and was looking forward to getting lots of photos of the extended family together as well as snapping some nature shots. Janet and Karen were both girl guides and all-around good kids. They were looking forward to exploring, going swimming, and seeing their grandparents, of course. Jesus, sounds a quite similar to my life. Concerning. Yeah, just wait. <laughs> and my, my stepmother's name is Edith also. So Your dad would never go camping now. No, 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 neither of them would. On August 6th, 1982, Sharon, another daughter of the Bentleys, got a phone call from her mother, Edith. Edith was calling from the Chamber of Commerce phone in Clearwater. Mm-hmm. She said they were having a great time and they were meeting Jackie Bob and the girls in Wellsbury Provincial Park for some family time. No one heard any more from either the Bentleys or the Johnsons after that. Mm. On August 23, 1982, Al Bonner, Bob Johnson's boss at Corman Mills, called the RCMP. Bob was supposed to be back at work on August 16th, but still had not returned. So this was a week after he was supposed to be there. Hmm. Bob had not missed a day of work in 20 years, but Bonner did not call sooner, as he'd assumed Bob and his family were still having fun. But after a week, he began to suspect something might be wrong. Yeah. RCMP listed the family of six missing persons after some quick inquiries. Police canvassed the area around Clearwater in the southern parts of Wells Gray, no one had seen the Bentleys or Johnsons. Brian Bentley and his wife Linda began distributing photos of the family to people in the area. A few days into the investigation, a service station attendant at the Petro-Canada station, about 60 kilometers east of Clearwater in Avola, remembered seeing the Johnsons' car. George Bentley was with his daughter Jackie and his two granddaughters. As they were refueling, George asked about good berry-picking spots in the area presumably to take the berries back to camp for Edith to bake into one of her much-loved pies. This lead prompted a huge search to be undertaken in south-central BC. The faces of the family were plastered all over the place, including local and national media. Cops, parks employees, and civilian volunteers combed Wells Gray on foot and using 4x4s looking for the Johnsons and Bentleys. Local pilots lent a hand from the air. They found no trace of the family. On September 13, 1982, an Abbotsford man named Kurt Crack called the police. He had been mushroom hunting in Wells Gray Park around Battle Mountain Road when he discovered a burnt-out Chrysler. The Johnson's car was a Chrysler, so RCMP attended immediately. Hmm. The Chrysler had been driven into the brush off the road and set on fire. What the police saw was a burnt-out husk of what used to be the Johnson's car, confirmed by the license plate, still on the rear of the vehicle. Hmm. Five keys dangled from the trunk. As police approached, they first noticed the smell. Hmm. From RCMP Sergeant Michael Eastham's book, The Seventh Shadow, When I got close enough, I noticed a very distinct odor, a sort of dusty scent emitted from the vehicle, made more pronounced by the fact that it was so damned hot outside. I'd seen and smelled a lot of dead bodies in my 22 years of service. 
I'd looked at and investigated them for a living, but I'd never worked a mass murder before. I wasn't even sure I wanted to look in, but I had to. It was my job. Eventually, I willed myself to look inside. The horror concealed within the vehicle was staggering. Oh, wow. This is a, an RCMP officer with seasoned, 20 yeah. years of service, a yeah. seasoned detective, and he was horrified by what he saw. Really tells the story of what he's seen. On the floor of the car, in both the front and back seats, were many charred but obviously human bones. Ugh. The forensic team began to meticulously photograph everything, carefully collecting the bones and other evidence. Police used a pry bar to gently open the trunk. The lock had melted shut in the fire. They saw the skulls of two little girls staring up at them. One of the skulls had a hole over the left eye. This was an exit wound. The youngster had been shot in the back of the head. The skull of what had turned out to be Edith Bentley had also been shot in the head. Police believe the bullet was still inside the skull at that point. The media got wind that the Bentley-Johnson families had been found and police had to contend with many onlookers while they tried to preserve a major crime scene. Who would do such a thing and why? Where were the truck and camper belonging to the Bentleys? What was left of this family of six was now the contents of 50 small plastic evidence bags. Wow. What are they? They must have really been charred up. Their identities had to be confirmed through dental records. Yeah. Wow. Evidence indicated that the family had been shot with a small caliber firearm. That turned out to be a 22 caliber rifle. Hmm. Park employees and visitors who were there at the time in question were vetted. RCMP asked if anyone had seen or picked up any hitchhikers in the area. No one they spoke to initially remembered seeing the truck and camper at all. Cops also put the evidence into a computer program that had been developed to assist with the recent capture and conviction of Clifford Olson, the Beast of BC. Mm. We'll get to that guy. Yeah, don't get me started on him now. They wanted to leave no lead uninvestigated. Police gave the media everything they could without compromising the investigation. They knew this case would have a lot of eyes on it nationally and wanted to leverage the people's interest to develop more leads. People left Wells Gray Park in bunches. Oh, I, I can imagine. Sure, summer yeah. was almost over, but uh, the thought that a madman is on the loose is probably what drove a lot of them to back up early. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. If I was there, I'd be gone. See you later. Yeah. Yeah, especially with kids. Yeah, without hesitation. I would, we would just, okay, pack it up. Hell, might even just leave it, really. RCMP felt the missing truck and camper were a big key to the investigation. They had mock-ups and photos made to show people as they began knocking on doors for hundreds of miles around. A man who'd been camping himself near North Battleford, Saskatchewan, on August 24th claimed he'd seen the truck and camper with a boat on top at a gas station. Hmm. He noticed the BC plates as that's where he was from. He said the two scruffy-looking men were speaking with heavy French accents, which is also odd as the truck had BC plates. Several others claimed they'd seen the same two men in a camping rig resembling the Bentleys. Composite drawings were made and distributed. In the meantime, a park employee reported having briefly seen a truck and camper fitting the description parked at the old Bear Creek prison campsite in Wells Gray. Would you want to camp somewhere called the old Bear Creek prison? Why not? Well, I don't know, maybe the word prison? It was a mobile prison. Okay. But it wasn't, you know. Bizarre? Okay. Upon investigation of the old Bear Creek prison campsite, RCMP found evidence that people had actually been camping there recently. 
a couple of extra old stock beer caps lay strewn about. Mm. This was Bob Johnson's favorite brew. Yeah. There were small sharpened sticks near a campfire. They assumed they'd been carved for use as marshmallow roasting tools. Yeah. Cops secured the scene and called for 20 more officers to help search. They wanted to get down on hands and knees and make sure that they got everything. Oh, absolutely. They might be finding bullets or whatnot now. Shell casing. Unopened extra old stock beer bottles were found in the water of a stream nearby. Many Canadians will use a stream as a natural cooler to keep their beer cold. Also where bears keep their drinks. <laughs> but I doubt that the bear drank extra old stock. Well, you never know. It was more ominous than that. If they were Bob's, he'd never gotten a chance to enjoy them. Yep. Metal detectors turned up six spent twenty-two caliber casings. Along with other evidence, it was assumed that this was the most likely site where the Bentley Johnson family had been killed. It later proved accurate. Mm. RCMP decided to keep this bit of information to themselves. They didn't want to let out where the murders had happened. A few weeks into the investigation, a man in Vancouver claimed he had seen the truck and camper parked illegally in his parking lot. This would have proven the truck had actually left the park, but the man turned out to be a crackpot looking for attention. Hmm. Police continued chasing down leads that seemed to go nowhere. By early 1983, there was over $50,000 worth of reward money available to anybody who could give information to solve the case. More than 10,000 posters had been sent all over North America. In 1983, 50 grand's a lot of scratch. It still is. It still is, but comparatively, you look back then, you're probably probably equal to about 250,000. Sure. Around 300 people from the West Coast all the way to Quebec claimed to have seen the camper truck driven by the two suspects. The public was starting to get antsy as this horrific crime seemed no closer to being solved. In late April of 1983... The RCMP decided that they would create a replica of the 1981 Ford F-250 and the 1971 10.5-foot Vanguard camper, complete with aluminum boat on top. They began driving it across Canada with signs on the side asking for assistance finding the original vehicle. This was coordinated with a media blitz, including a video reenactment of the family using actors to jog people's memories. It's a really, really smart bit of... Um... Oh, marketing's not the right word, but... Uh, they did that with Bernardo, too. Oh, did they? I yeah, they absolutely did. They did a, a TV special with a bunch of reenactments. Well, I mean, I, I mean specifically, like, uh, recreating the vehicle and driving it across Canada. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a really, a really uh, interesting and creative way to uh, uh, get attention on the case. Mm -hmm. And potential witnesses. Really, really, really smart. Two men, match, matching the, two men matching the descriptions of the scruffy men were detained and questioned after asking for help to dispose of a 410 caliber over-and-under rifle. Sounds like it might be them. Well, yeah, you've got a description matching what somebody, a witness said they saw. You've got the right caliber of rifle. The investigation was even leading to the U.S. in Detroit. Mm -mm. And cops were about to pursue this lead across the border when another call came in. On October 18th, 1983, back in Wells Gray, about halfway up Trophy Mountain, a logging crew found the burned-out remains of a Ford F-250 truck and camper. The license plate matched, 4836FY. This was the Bentley's plate. Hmm. The, this was it. After 13 months, the truck and camper had been found, but the boat was still missing. 
The remains of the trucking camper were situated in a spot that no stranger in the area could have found easily, and it wasn't easily visible from the air, so that's why they'd missed it. Yeah. The person who disposed of the truck was clearly local, and that person would also, in all likelihood, be the murderer as well. Yeah, it's such a remote area, all, all of this, where, where the crime took place. There typically would be some, you would have to have some knowledge of the terrain. There was a bullet hole in the door of the truck. This is another piece of information mm. that was kept as holdback evidence. Mm. Police started going back through their local tips. Earlier in the investigation, RCMP had spoken to 23-year-old David William Shearing and his family, who lived only a few kilometers from the Bear Creek murder site. Shearing's family was well-respected, but he was the black sheep. He was known to be into drinking and drugs. As well, he was known to have relationships with younger girls, apparently as young as 13. The same age as Janet Johnson. Fucking disgusting. It doesn't make him a murderer, though. Still makes him disgusting. Yeah. Shearing said he was shocked that this kind of thing could take place so close to home, and he hoped the killers would be caught. Mm -hmm. Around the time of the discovery of the Bentley's truck, Shearing's name had come up again. Someone called the tip line saying that David Shearing had been investigated for an unsolved hit-and-run fatality in Wells Gray, but was never charged. Oh, interesting. As well, on the same day as that tip, a waitress simply slipped another investigator a piece of paper with only two words on it, David Shearing. Oh, oh. The very next day, when a young investigator was speaking to a local man and woman, the woman said something interesting. Aren't you going to tell him about David Shearing and the truck with the bullet hole in the door? <laughs> so there's that holdback evidence. Yeah. That's the first time that they had heard anything like that. The man gave the woman a dirty look and she left the room. The investigator left but came back after he knew the woman would be alone. She told him David Shearing had been asking about re-registering a truck with a bullet hole in the door. <laughs> David William Shearing rose quickly to the top of the suspect list. Yeah. Shearing was working in construction in Tumbler Ridge, a nine-and-a-half-hour drive from Clearwater. BC is such a big province. Yeah, I've never even heard of any of most of these other places. Tumbler Ridge, I've heard of Tumbler Ridge. I haven't, and I was born near it, apparently. <laughs> However, upon contacting the RCMP detachment there in Tumbler Ridge, police were told they were dealing with a weird duck named David William Shearing, a Clearwater native. This is even before they told him why they were calling. Yeah. This other cop just started talking about this guy. Mm. The weird duck. The weird duck. Cops had been watching him since September 22nd when he'd been found with $40,000 of tools in his car. Dang. Another man in the car had been armed with a cocked 30-30 rifle and had been charged with attempted murder of a police officer. He had the weapon pointed directly at the cop. Jeez. Yeah, you don't do that unless you mean business. Oh, I mean, nowadays, I don't know, boom, you're dead. Yep. The next day came the report of a burglary of tools from a work shed. Mm. Shearing had said, no, these are mine, I'm coming from work, but turns out they weren't. RCMP went to Quadra Camp, where after a brief chase, they caught David William Shearing and his two buddies. Cops had observed them digging a hole near their trailer to bury the stolen tools. One of the men who had been digging the hole was the same man who had just been charged with attempted murder of a police officer. He was already out on a promise to appear. Jeez. Canadian justice, right? <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. Shearing was told to check into the Tumbler Ridge detachment for every week after that, as he was to appear in court on possession of the stolen property. His court date was on November 21st. 
Well, so it's just like that. So they just yeah, check in once a week. Apparently it was a three member detachment. So there wasn't a lot of uh, room mm-hmm. to keep anybody in jail there. Oh, okay. Rather than do that, they would just tell them, yep, you got to keep showing up to the cop shop every week so we can keep an eye on you. Yeah, I, sure. That's, yeah. I mean, yeah, three people. It's impossible to yep. yeah, keep tabs on everybody, but uh, wow. So after this new information, Mike Eastham, the lead investigator on the case, wanted to talk to Shearing. He headed toward Tumblr Ridge, formulating his plan. Police picked up David William Shearing on November 18, 1983, as he got off a bus in Tumblr Ridge. They told him they needed to chat with him about some minor matters. Shearing agreed to go along with the officers without being arrested. On the way, they spotted a pack of coyotes near the road. This led to a conversation about hunting and guns, as it would. Mm-hmm. One of the cops mentioned he used to shoot grouse with a 22 cooey. Single shot? asked Shearing. <laughs> the RCMP officers said yes, but he said he would love a pump action for more rapid fire. Shearing said, I've got one, a twenty-two Remington. Oh my god, not the smartest fella. Uh, the cops were thinking that this was strike one. Mm-hmm. Well, it was known that this was the type of rifle that had killed the Johnson-Bentley family. Yep. Shearing didn't let on whether he was suspicious of the conversation and gave them more information about the gun being his dad's and the fact that it was hanging in the house at their ranch. Yep, okay. When they got to the detachment, David Shearing was introduced to RCMP Sergeant Michael Easton. Shearing's eyes widened with fear. Easton had been in the news about the Bentley Johnson murders as the lead investigator. Cops needed Shearing to talk. They had a plan to soften him up. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Up. When the group sat down in the interview room, the cops offered Shearing a smoke and got into some general chit-chat about Shearing himself and his family history. Police cautioned Shearing, saying he would not have to speak to them if he didn't want to, but if he wanted to talk to a lawyer, he could. He didn't want to talk to a lawyer at that time. He told the cops that he'd been born on April 10th, 1959 in New Westminster, B.C. This made him 24 years old at the time. He had a brother named Greg, who was 14 years older than him. The family had moved to Clearwater when David was five. Shearing had finished high school with a 70% average and went on to take a heavy mechanics course before bouncing around BC and Alberta doing odd jobs. His father, an avid conservationist, had passed away from cancer the year prior. His mother now resided in a nursing home. This was a soft spot for Shearing. Hmm. Shearing's dad had been a prison guard. He admitted that he had felt sad and began to drink more heavily after his dad died. When Shearing was asked if he'd spend any time behind bars, he was clearly uncomfortable. They changed to more talk of fishing, cars, and guitars, and Shearing relaxed again. He even admitting to having a car accident when drunk that cracked his pelvis. Hmm. And there wasn't there an earlier uh, hit and run with fatalities? Well, let's, let's get there. Hmm. Eastham asked Shearing if he knew why they'd come all this way to talk to him. Shearing said that he wasn't sure, but it had to be important. He then said he had nothing to hide and that he was an honest man. Sure, sure. Yeah, totes. 
Of course he's an honest man. He didn't I, get, do, I get that sense. He didn't do it. Yeah, I get the sense. We, we always learned the person's three names when they didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a tell for these true crime things. No kidding, eh? Edward James Olmo? Yeah, well, maybe he done it. Oh. Eastham again cautioned Shearing uh, regarding his right to remain silent and access to a lawyer if, if desired. Only guilty men need lawyers, right? Yeah. Shearing agreed to talk to them, asking, Are you guys investigating the Johnson-Bentley murders? Mm-hmm. Eastham didn't answer right away, but when he did, he answered with a question. Did anyone talk to you about it last year? Shearing said someone had spoken to him. Eastham asked Shearing if he'd known about the vehicles found and if he'd ever been to those places. Shearing squirmed. He knew about those places. Eastham told Shearing that bikers were assisting the RCMP with their inquiries, and this had uncovered a few interesting things. From Michael Eastham's book, The Seventh Shadow, Eastham said, I want to see if you are an honest guy. I'm going to start back a couple of years ago and see what you will do. Remember, you can leave at any time. We discovered that a kid was killed that summer on Wells Gray Road. It was hit and run, or criminal negligence, or whatever. The guy didn't stop. I know all about it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here in Dawson Creek on a weekend. Shearing's body relaxed, and his demeanor changed. He must have thought he was off the hook for the Johnson-Bentley murders at this point. Mm. Shearing admitted to having been drunk and was driving home one night, and he saw a shape in the road. It was too late to stop or even slow down. He hit it at full speed. Good God. The it he ran over and killed was a young man named Dave Carter. Fearing punishment, Shearing and his pal just drove off, leaving Dave Carter to die in the road. Nice. Yeah, shaking my head over here. He didn't call police at the time as he knew he'd be in trouble. Eastham asked Shearing how he felt and he said he was upset about it. Shearing wrote a full confession to the drunken hit and run as the officers looked on. But he's an honest guy. Why, he's did, an why, honest did, guy. why did he keep this a secret for so long, such an honest guy? Well, it was eating him alive. And I guess so. He had to tell them now. Oh, uh, how kind. How kind of him. So they had one homicide on him. Could they get him to admit to six more? They chatted a bit about the possible consequences of the hit and run before Eastham asked him the question he'd been waiting to ask. David, what do you think about the Johnson and Bentley murders? What do you think of them being killed in your front yard, so to speak? Shearing said it was bad for the community. Do you know where the car was found, Eastham asked. Yeah, said Shearing. Do you know where the truck was found? Yeah, said Shearing. You also know where they were killed? Bear Creek, said Shearing. Shearing knew right away he'd slipped up. Mm-hmm. His face showed it. He'd admitted knowing information that only the RCMP and the killer knew that the Johnson-Bentley families had been murdered at the Bear Creek campsite. Hmm. At that point, Shearing simply said, I think I'd like to speak to a lawyer now. Oh. Wonder why. Yeah, because you made a boo-boo. Eastham continued the conversation after a brief break, telling the visibly shaking Shearing he definitely needed a lawyer, but it would be best to talk now. Everybody does dumb things, especially when they've been drinking too much, right? Sure. Right. Yeah. Eastham told Shearing that cops would have to involve his family more in the investigation, his mother and his brother, if he didn't talk right now. Hmm. Shearing started to cry. Yeah, the mother part is going to get him. Eastham asked, you knew we'd come for you, didn't you, David? Shearing answered, 
Yeah. David spilled the beans. He explained how he had seen the family camping the day before. Shearing said he wanted their stuff. He admitted to killing the four adults outside. A small tent was nearby. He knew the girls Janet and Karen were in there. He was hiding behind the camper, watching the adults chat around the campfire. He could see three people sitting and a fourth standing. One of the women saw him and stood up quickly. He made himself known, showing them his rifle. Don't move, I got a gun. An adult male, that would have been Bob Johnson, began to stand up, but Shearing shot him in the throat. Bob fell onto his back, gurgling and groping at his neck wound. Jeez. The women screamed. As Shearing prepared to fire again, the remaining older man, George Bentley, ran toward his truck. Shearing dropped George with a second shot just as he reached the passenger side of the Ford F-250. Jackie Johnson ran toward the girl's tent and was blasted through the head mid-stride, dropping immediately. Jesus. As he went to find Edith, he shot Bob Johnson again to put him out of his misery. Edith was having trouble getting the door of the camper open, where she might be able to take refuge. Shearing walked up quietly behind her, pointed his gun directly at the back of her head, and killed her with another shot. He then said he killed the girls in their tent. Shearing claimed that he went through the process of getting rid of the evidence, put the girls into the trunk of the car and the, the adults in the front. For someone who had wanted their stuff, Shearing did not seem to keep many of the Johnson and Bentley's valuable possessions. He threw away pretty much everything except the boat and some tools and a few other things which he'd hidden. Cops knew Shearing was full of shit, but he wouldn't go any further. They'd hit a wall. He'd confessed to multiple murders and would be going away for a very long time. David William Shearing was charged with six counts of second-degree murder on November 21, 1983. The media went nuts. RCMP had got their man, the Wells Gray gunman. As pictures emerged of Shearing, people got their first looks at the monster. He's not a pretty man. He stands six feet four inches tall, and he's round-shouldered. He has beady little eyes, a shitty Elvis-looking hairdo, and a massive hooked nose complemented by a droopy handlebar mustache. Handsome. He's not very. You can view his pretty mug in the show notes. Yeah. He's, he's an uggo. He's a scary-looking guy to be, to be blunt. He is a scary-looking guy. David William Shearing pled guilty to all six counts of murder. On April 16, 1984, at Shearing's sentencing, Judge McKay said, What we have here is a cold-blooded and senseless execution of six defenseless and innocent victims for no apparent reason other than he possibly coveted some of their possessions. David Shearing was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. This is the maximum allowable in Canada, and he was actually the first person sentenced in this way. Oh, good. Shearing just hung his head, defeated. The morning of Shearing's sentencing, RCMP Sergeant Michael Eastham had made a little visit to Shearing. He promised to visit him in jail at a later date once everything had died down. He wanted Shearing to tell him the real story. Mm -hmm. Eastham kept his promise. David Shearing agreed to talk to Eastham and tell him the whole story. He had nothing else to lose. He was already in jail for the maximum time he could be. Yeah, and you could tell in his story that the, uh, he was pretty detailed about everything until it came to uh, the girls. Right. Because then he's just like, oh, I went to the tent and killed them. Mm-hmm. He had noticed 
the Johnson Bentley family's camping a few days before the murders. Shearing had become obsessed with the girls, Janet and Karen. He would hide in the bush, going over in his mind what he wanted to do to them, no doubt playing with himself. He made up his mind, knowing he would have to kill the four adults before he could get to the girls. After shooting the four adults, Shearing went into the tent and told Janet and Karen that the campsite was under siege by bikers and that he was there to rescue them. He told the girls to stay put, which they did. He then loaded the bodies of the adults into the backseat of the Johnson's car, and then he returned to the tent. It was here that the real nightmare began for the two youngsters. After redressing himself, he forced the girls to help him clean up the campsite. He kept Janet and Karen alive for over a week at his ranch and a fishing cabin on the Clearwater River. He did as he pleased until he realized this couldn't last forever. He had to get rid of them. He killed Karen, the youngest, first, walking her out into the woods and telling her to turn around so he could pee. When she did, he shot her in the back of the head. Later on, he used the same tactic on Janet, telling her he'd tied the 11-year-old Karen to a tree in the forest so 13-year-old Janet and he could have some privacy. Oh, good fucking God. He shot Janet in the back of the head, going on to dispose of the girls' bodies by placing them in the trunk of their father's car and lighting it on fire. David Shearing eventually changed his last name to Ennis, his mother's last name. Perhaps he wanted a fresh start, to shed the old last name like his crimes never happened. We've seen this a few times. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it has more to do with just so they don't get, so they can try to, not to... Be anonymous in the in the yeah, pen? Yeah, not, not to start over, but just so that they're, they're more hidden. Yeah, well, you know what? That's, they shouldn't be allowed to change their stupid names. There's one of the rights that you get taken away from you. Yeah. Interesting. David Ennis married a Prince Albert Saskatchewan resident named Heather. What in the actual fuck? There's a whole court case that went on about her being fired after it turned out she was married to him by uh, a business in uh, Prince Albert. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a mess. Hmm. The Johnson and Bentley families have not forgotten they come to every parole hearing that David Ennis has. His first one was in 2008. He was 49 at the time. Guess what? No parole for that guy. Good. Here's some audio of the Johnson and Bentley families and their friends reacting after his July 2013 parole hearing, where David Ennis was again rejected. He doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. You know, you can improve. he sat there and he felt he seemed to be... Totally, yes, I can do this, I can get out and I can feel good. I've got my place all set, I've got everything behind me, all my marbles are all in place. But your marbles weren't in place when you killed my family, our family. They weren't in place when you did that. He's still a monster. He hasn't changed, he's still a monster. In all our family's eyes, he's still the monster. I think there was some remorse actually shown this time. Yeah, he um, said he was sorry for the first time. Yes. Never ever heard that before. Never heard he was sorry. And it took him 30 years to say it. <laughs> Well, to stay there another 30 years to actually feel how sorry you really are. It's disgustingly painful. And when you get to know these people and you see the pain that they've had to deal with for 30 years and you look into their eyes and you sit in a room and have to read a statement for your friend, 
um, it never goes away. And I think he's right where he should be for the rest of his remaining days. Yeah, if the first time you say sorry is at your parole hearing, you're not sorry. No. You're not sorry. It's more about you getting parole than you are being sorry. Yeah, I'm with everybody who doesn't want to see this guy ever get out of jail. Good God, no. No, no. Six bloody people. Well, seven, if oh, you like, count the guy that he yeah, hit no, and ran. Yeah, right. It, like, se- he's killed seven people. Seven, yep. Jesus. All of the dialogue that we used came from retired RCMP detective Sergeant Michael Eastham's book, The Seventh Shadow. It was difficult to find as it's out of print. In fact, I had to order it twice because it was destroyed in transit the first time. <laughs> I reached out to thank Mr. Eastham for writing such a detailed chronicle of this story. I told him that we were doing this podcast, and if you're listening, thank you again. He's happily retired and living in Nanaimo. Yes, the home of the Nanaimo bar. And I have to say, I mean, I, I watched uh, him on the... Uh, detectives, the yes. Detectives, on the CBC. CBC show. It was some great... I think he, he, he did some really great uh, detective work. Like Absolutely. He, he, you know, this is quite a long time ago when there wasn't the technology they had now. And so they had to be very creative in how they would go. Uh, they just newly had that, that Clifford Olson computer program. Yep. And, and you, you really had to rely on your wits to uh, catch people. And so we, I thought it was some really, really amazing detective work. And, uh, you know, thank God for him. Especially his, uh, when, when you read in his book and, and what they went into in the de- detectives about uh, how Eastham challenged Shearing in their interrogation of yep. him. Yeah. It was brilliant. That is a brilliant piece of police work. No Mr. Big Sting needed. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Like w- where you had to rely on your wits. It's all your, com- it, it comes down to communication. Mm-hmm. In those situations, your ability to understand the person you're talking to, yep. uh, mental chess, you know? And so it was really, really beautiful work. I'm really impressed. Absolutely. And like I said, thank God for him. Yes. Thank you so much for your book, Mr. Easton. We really, really appreciated it. Yeah. And thank you also for your years of service, putting dirt bags like shearing uh, where they belong. Absolutely. You're a good man. And we love it that the Mounties always get their man. That's right. We're big Mountie fans here. Yep. I'll post links to our other research resources in the show notes as well. So there you go. That's that story, Scott, that we've been yeah, wanting it's, to tell. Yeah, it's, it's uh, aside from the detectives, it's not one that's talked about often in, in uh, Canadian crime. And so it's really crazy when you think about how disgusting and graphic and terrible it really is. Like it was, it's a... It's a horrible, horrible crime, uh, one of the worst out there. And so it's uh, one that needs to, a story that needs to be told because people need to know well, what the hell is happening in their backyard. There are so many Canadian stories. I, I mean, like I've mentioned last week, I have, I've got a list of about 200 now. Yeah. And people keep sending me more and more and more. Yeah. We were having a bit of a conversation on... Uh, Canadian true crime podcast group wall about how Canadian uh, media doesn't seem to understand what kind of interest people have in true crime. You don't hear about Dellen Millard here on the news at all. Yeah. No, and it's a fascinating case. Yeah. Um, a lot of true crime it gets covered by regional news, like when Picton was happening, that's all you could see about the Abbotsford killer, that's all. But it seems very regional. And aside from news topics, 
once once the case is once the person has been caught, it really kind of dies out of the public's uh, out of the public's eye. And so uh, we didn't have we don't really have a lot of true crime based shows out of Canada. You yep. know, th thus shows like us and, and uh, well, Canadian there's actually quite a, quite a few. Well, uh, now there is. Yeah, now there is. But you know, throughout most of our thirty six times and yeah, but mo throughout most of our life pre podcasts, there weren't true crime. Yeah, uh, there was shows. Yep. based based around Canada so, that I'm aware of. There was uh, Max Haynes was a, a true crime writer, a Canadian true crime writer. I remember his stuff in the newspaper when I was growing up. Mm. Used to be in the Bridgewater Bulletin. Mm. Maybe that's what Mr. Dressel really was. Mr. Dressel. It was, it was an underlying message of, of murder. Let's not go back to torture poor Mr. Dressel. Oh, God. No, please. We have a bunch of uh, new Patreon patrons. Thank you so much. Uh, we're uh, nine people away from uh, our initial goal of 100 patrons. Wow. 91 people. Wow. I am so blown away by wow. people's generosity and the love that they show this uh, this show. Yeah. I am, I'm just floored by it. No kidding. Apparently, I did pronounce one of the names last time incorrectly as well. It, so it happens. Adele Bruff. Uh -huh. Oh. She says it's like rough. It's rough being bruff. Oh, okay. So Adele, uh, and she also said that uh, she would give us more money after her next album drops. Oh, that's nice of you, Adele. We really appreciate it. It really, really is. Uh, maybe that'll be our first 50 grand sponsor. Sure. I mean, you're doing pretty well, Adele. You're you doing could, okay. You can just use that little rhyme in your next song, too, one of your next songs. There you go. You're doing pretty well, Adele. Scott, you're a lyricist. I really am. So thank you to Shauna Anderson from Thornton, Colorado. Oh, sweet. Colorado. Welcome, Shauna. Also, Catherine Schroeder from uh, Patchewalik, Victoria, Australia. Oh, I've never heard that name. Love it. And uh, Make sure you put some shrimps on the barbie. That was lame. Hello, nice lady. Lame. But welcome, Catherine. I am lame. Kookaburra. Uh, Lucky Jean from Berkeley, California. I heart the California. Mm-hmm. I, I love that place. I want to go someday. Love it. Julie P., from Langley, British Columbia. Oh. Langley, just down the road. Hey, Julie. Yeah, it is really close. We need to have a meetup with some of our local we, folks. We and really, really do. Anastasia Belladomova. Look at that. Anastasia Belladomova. I think I said that correctly. Thank you very much. You are from Latvia. Sweet. Riga. That is sweet. Anastasia is a great name, and I'm sure Mike screwed up your last name. Anastasia Belodomova. Sure. Well, maybe, maybe you nailed it. I don't know. Let don't, us know. Get, get in the Umber Yard, Anastasia. I do. Yes. Get, come on to the Umber Yard and tell me if I did a shitty job of yep. saying your name. Please. Is this our first Latvian one? It should be. I do believe. Sweet. Uh, our friend Michelle McCann from Truro, Nova Scotia. She is my uh, sister-in-law's best friend. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Well, welcome, Michelle. Lauren Radburn from... Oh, good Lord. Narromine. Okay. Narromine, uh, Australia. Sweet. Welcome, Warren. <laughs> I am so terrible at this. You, you, you would be a, a, a terrible uh, hockey announcer because all the names. Well, they practice just... those. Yeah, I know. But like if there's a new player or something, like you would just destroy it. 
is Alexander Ovechkin. Yeah, you only know that because he's played for like 20 years. Yeah. Yarko Rutu? <laughs> that one's pretty easy. I loved Yarko. Yeah. And finally, uh, from Kitchener, Ontario, Sammy. Thank you very much, Sammy or Samantha. Welcome, Samantha. Much as appreciated. Totes. Oh, we got some great people coming. We do. We have lots of lots of people have been joining us in the Yumber Yard. We're almost at 400 people there. I, I'd like to put a request out, though, like all, all kidding aside, when you're filling out the, uh, the very simple uh, questions to join the Yumber Yard, pl- please don't refer to me as the other guy. I love it. I, I refer to Scott as the other guy. Well, people have referred to me as Mark. Yes, but I'm Mac. I, the other guy is quite devalued. Scooter. They call Dave called you Scooter, which I love. Which indicates that they know my name. They have we and are playing off been paying of my attention. Name. But when they say and the other guy implies my role is my name is Mike and this is Scott. Correct. Correct. I'm just saying it kind of hurts a bit. Maybe don't refer to me as the other guy. Just saying. I still accept you. I still click approve, but I'm going to refer to you as the person. Don't be a dink. I'm not being, seriously, it hurts when people, it happens way too often. Your the other sk- guy. Your skin is way too thin. It, it is absolutely not, but. Okay. But I'm just saying. So if you want to make Scott cry, continue to call him the other guy. Okay. Cause I'm not joking. Are you not? I'm not joking. Are you really upset by that? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're kidding. Uh, okay, but like I'm just saying. They're kidding. They know who you are. I'm just, it doesn't seem like it. People I'm, know who you are. I'm just saying it cuts a bit. It gets under my skin. You should write an episode or do some research or something. Thanks for the support, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay, please. His name is Scott. He's, he's got a little tiny birdie arms and a little skinny body and his feeling is hurt. Not helping. <laughs> so thank you all for your pledges. Uh, me and the other guy, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you like nobody's business. Uh, if you want to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Actually, Scott's a good photographer. If you like, uh, if you like photos, go to at SDHPix underscore on Twitter. For, for Instagram? Yeah. Which is it? Uh, it's, it's SDHPix, uh, yeah, underscore, something like that. Yeah, there you go. My name's on there. Just search Scott, uh, the other guy. Type in the other guy. Type in the other guy. It'll pop up. I feel bad that you feel bad. That's all right. Not really. <laughs> uh, check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends about us. That's Mike and Scott. <coughs> Scott. Scott. I think some people don't know who I am, so... It's fine. I'm okay with it. I've come to grips with it. Does it bother you that much? Yeah, it does. Okay. Yeah. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory, like iTunes. 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 iTunes is also great. iTunes is for farting. (laughs) On iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and at our host, Podbean. We have a promo this week 
from uh, our new friends at the Spoop Files. Ooh, what a cool name. Yeah. Um, they have a special message for us. Oh, I want to hear. Oh, oh, there's some shitting in hats. I think you might be onto something. I'm Alex, perpetual skeptic and one of the hosts of the Spoop Files podcast. And I'm Maya, true believer and the other host of the Spoop Files podcast. We've got a uh, unique case this week, Maya. I've never really heard of anything this strange. Oh, that's saying something, considering the cases we've covered. Yeah, well, apparently, there are two men out in BC asking people to tell them to shit in their hats. Oh, wait, are you talking about Mike and Scott of the Dark Poutine podcast? Those guys are great! But how is this a spoop file? It's not. This is just a convenient way to transition into a promo. As mentioned, we host The Spoop Files, a podcast about the weird parts of Canada, and sometimes the world. You can find us on Podbean, the same host as Dark Poutine. We recently took a look at the Betty and Barney Hill case, so if you're interested in alien abduction, check us out. Thanks, Mike and Scott, for letting us put our name out there. And... Go, go shit in your hats! <laughs> oh my god. That was amazing. So... That was amazing. They claim at least 80% of their content is Canadian. So oh, that was amazing. And they knew your name. They did. They did. <laughs> yes. There you go. So you're not the other guy. Well, not to them. And I appreciate you're that. You're not guys. the other guy to me either. Well, to some people I am. Anyways. You're in the room with me. I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> is it the farting that made you aware? Oh, it's many things. But that, seriously, that was a wicked, wicked promo. Thank you guys so much, The Spoop Files. Uh, check them out and hit subscribe if you haven't done so already. Uh, we'll link to them in our show notes. That's it for this week's episode. That's all we've got. That's it? That's it. Oh, boo. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.